0: Well, Kenneth, thank you so much for spending your afternoon with us here and sharing your story. We always like to start with your early days. I know you were born in Brooklyn, but give us some background about your parents and your early childhood.
1: So I was, um, my family actually, my parents were both born in Brooklyn. I was born in Brooklyn, but raised actually uh, on Long Island. And um, I uh, had very little interest in the the business. My father had a, uh, a business, eventually a, a small shoe factory in um, a very tough part of New York, called Williamsburg. Um, and I had very little interest in it. It was they, they made women's shoes. It was not masculine enough. It wasn't the sort of thing I had envisioned. By. I wrote myself. I could see myself going down, and I. I was very intent on uh, playing shortstop for the New York Mets, and um, so, um, and then at at a certain point, I decided that I probably should go to law school. In that, I wasn't it wasn't all that clear as to the path of 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 preference, and that would only create options for me later on that I could um, I could uh, um, choose between. And um, so I was—that is—was another uh, road I, I had chosen. But in, in the interim, I had spent a summer in, in, in my father's factory, and uh, I gravitated to the sample room, and I was fascinated by the notion that you could, what you could create with the, the components that existed, um, and the leather, the the last, um, the heel, and sole and how a slight change of any one of those components created a totally different product and it wasn't um it was all aspects of design um and sculpture and engineering and and all these art forms kind of converged and at the end of the day you you've created this object that had practical applications and um and it could be something that you felt um you know that could be inspired by personal experience. You can actually try it on, you could wear it maybe, um, or somebody else could. and it could trans- trans- it could somehow um, connect to people in, in, a, in a very personal way. And I've always have said and believed that almost everything you wear affects how you look, but shoes specifically also affect how you feel. And you had this unique way of connecting with people. Kenneth, your
0: father's shoe company was called El Greco. Can you tell us why he started it? I mean, what was his inspiration for starting a shoe company?
1: He didn't start it actually. He had acquired a, a factory. I think somebody had owed him some money and they gave him a, a, a piece of this factory. And, um, and then he ended up owning it and, uh, learning the business as an adult. And, uh, uh, and and i learned it from him i mean i he wasn't on the creative side he was more on the business side and sales side so but i was fascinated with the the, the, bringing the product to market and everything that went into that and um and I, i learned early on that you needed to in effect put yourself in the shoes of the person that you want to relate to um to hope that they will put themselves in your proverbially put themselves in your shoes so you know it was a very kind of interpersonal experience and uh, and i and i learned how to make patterns i spent a lot of time with the pattern maker and then i eventually taught myself to draw because i knew i was going to need to be able to do that to communicate thoughts and ideas and, um and uh I, and i was fascinated i had applied to law school i was supposed to go to law school that fall and i
2: kept deferring um and, uh, and eventually I just uh, never went. Was, uh, was El Greco also a brand um, that, that was like consumer-facing sold in stores or was it mainly working it with other brands?
1: No, it was, a, it was a brand in and of itself. And they made shoes, not always original, sho- original design shoes. And they sold them better department stores in New York at the time. And, uh, and then we started a business together called Candies. Um and uh and candies became a very big business and that candies was an we Im- was imported they were made in italy and we ended up at that point closing the factory um and there's a whole lot of thinking that went into that but that totally transformed everything that he had created and and you know the idea of a, if you own a physical factory there's literally hundreds and hundreds of any one of of, of components and processes and any one of which could essentially shut you down. You ran out of thread or you ran out of um, or a certain employee didn't show up who operated a certain machine and or um, you ran out of a certain leather. But and then essentially the factory comes to a halt. And then in the best days, you can only produce X amount of, of, of shoes. And, um, and in the worst days, you're out of business. So the, the the equation wasn't a very attractive one. Um, so we started importing some shoes from Italy called Candies, and which became a very big business very fast, and um, it ended up becoming um, it, it, the business and quickly. And we ended up closing the factory and uh, um, and started doing that. And after a few years, I, I chose to to, um, exit the business and, and do something, um, very personal, individual. And, uh, knowing that if if I didn't do it, then I probably never would, my life would never, would only get more complicated as I got a little bit older. As I found, as I got married, if, if, and when I got married and if, and when I had children, so I, um, I, uh, made the decision at that point to go in a different direction also in Italy. Uh, with different kinds of factories, making different kinds of products. And uh, and I have never looked back.
0: Kenneth, how early on in your childhood did you know that you wanted to learn the business from your dad? Um, and the reason I ask is because, you know, you haven't yet mentioned any of your educational kind of days. Were you not into school I mean was going into business something that you recognized early on and that you kind of just wanted to go down that path
1: uh, I, I it's a good question I I um I uh I wasn't sure business was what I wanted to do maybe specifically that business the woman's business was not something I saw myself wanting to uh, pursue and I thought a legal education would help me broaden my, the universe of of, uh, of paths that would might become available and doors that might open. And, um, uh, so I, and I, so I wasn't thinking that was what I was going to do. And, and I ended up working with him that summer specifically because he had his, uh, his number two person who was running the factory had just left him. And, so and that was the proverbial hand that fed us that shoe factory. So I thought I should learn the business if I could to the degree that I could, and um, and I it, and, and I uh, kind of jumped in and immersed myself, and I saw things there that I didn't expect and took away what I never thought I would, and uh, and it was I, I, I found it very satisf- very satisfying.
2: Yeah. Were there any brands that you were, other brands that you were really inspired by growing up that you kind of looked to for just perhaps it was design inspiration or just, uh, you know, really admired their work?
1: You know, there was always product that I was inspired by. It was usually typically contemporary product, you know, product that did things that others didn't, um, shoes that were made in ways that that others hadn't been. Um most of the brands in those days um I hate to admit probably probably don't you probably don't even know today um and uh but um but I was always fascinated with 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 the universe of alternatives that you know what el- what else could people um avail themselves of and because then not much different than today i didn't nobody really needs what we sell. Nobody, there's hardly an American today that needs another pair of shoes, especially black shoes. And um our goal and I realized early on was to make you think you did or make you um want them knowing that you didn't need them and then hope he'd make you want them again um mm-hmm. and then again after that. So um uh and and to do that you had to kind of understand what were the alternatives that was available to that person. So and it was the kind of being out in the world, out in the streets um out in the clubs at night, knowing and seeing what people were wearing and and also seeing what they weren't and trying to understand what the statement they were trying to make and uh um and if there was a, a better way they could be making it and um so and you know I would also often say kind of in a metaphorical way I'd look in my closet in the morning and say what do I wish was here and then I'd go to work and make it. Um so, you know, there's just a lot of stuff out in the world, especially today with the internet and uh the kind of coming together with global economy. And uh people have lots of choices. They literally have infinite uh, amount of choices. So I have to have a reason to exist and I, I have to have a point of difference. And I have to, and that and I have to be committed to it and uh um and deliver on it uh i have to create a fantasy a dream and i have to deliver on that um consistently and uh, everything i do has to have a consistent point of view um over a continuous point of time um for it to in fact be a brand otherwise it's just a label and you bring, uh, up
0: an, you bring up an interesting word choices right that we have a lot of choices now And that e-commerce has made it and direct to consumer has made it a lot easier, a lot more accessible to start a brand. But at the same time, that also means that these lots of choices means a lot more competition, right? As an entrepreneur in the fashion industry, what is your advice to somebody who wants to be an entrepreneur now and is competing with these choices? How how should they stand out? Or how can you stand out?
1: So, um, well, again, you have to have a point of difference and you have to have a story to tell and you have to tell it in a compelling way. And, um, and I think fashion is as much of an art as it, is, as it is a science. And you have to understand not just what, Exist in the supply chain, but, but how it becomes available to people. And creativity, again, is not just, a, it's not just what you bring to market in and of itself, it's as much how you do it as, as what you do. Um, and, uh, and yes, everything that's available everywhere is available to you if you're resourceful and you're pers- persistent. Um, and in my point, you know, from my point of view, um, everybody who, where she's everywhere in theory is a the perspective um client. So um but at the same time everybody sells shoes everywhere as a prospective competitor to your point a minute mm-hmm. ago. And um so I again I have to just I have to have a clear point of view and I have I have to stick to it. You know, there's an old adage about a story about a uh a shoe salesman that goes down to uh Africa, comes back upon assignment, comes back and tells his boss I can't sell shoes down there. They don't wear shoes. And the guy sends it down a younger salesman, um, and he comes back a little bit later, and he says the opportunities are endless. They don't even have a pair, so it's the lens through which you see the opportunity. I, I think is critical, and um, and it's certainly that way in, in the shoe
2: business as it is in most businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about how you know the Kenneth Cole brand came about. You know, at what point did it? Did you decide, you know, I want to start a brand and and have it be called Kenneth Cole, um and, and why you decided to 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 make it your name and also what the kind of first initial steps were of like what you were gonna go out go about in design and design and create. So I was um
1: so I set out to start a business. I didn't know what the business was gonna be at the time, truthfully. I, I and I didn't it wasn't preconceived. Um and I was talking to, about, to other designers about possibly working with them and uh, partnering with them in different ways and maybe doing just their shoes and, and, um, and then um, I realized I needed to move quickly because uh, I was, I was going to run out of money. I was going to run out of resources um, and capital, human capital, financial capital. So I, um, and, and I knew I had a better chance of getting credit. From a shoe factory that needed business, than from a bank that didn't. So I ran to Italy, and networked, found agents and and insurance and factories, and I sold them on the opportunity um, to to work together and to get credit. Um, so and then um, I built a lot of cool lady shoes. Came back, had to sell them. Um, oh, before I went, I named the company I should say Kenneth Cole, Inc. because Again, there wasn't Google in those days, and if I had made up a name, I stood a very high likelihood that was in six months to a year or more they somebody could turn around and uh, and uh tell me that I can't use that name because somebody else was and there wasn't the whole trademark process wasn't as um as tra- as transparent as it is obviously now because of the, because of the uh, um, the internet. So, um, and I, and I, I, I knew I didn't want to take a chance of, of making having coming up with a name, a name, and not, and and that, and then not being able to having to pivot to a certain point. So I went with my own name because most people at that point, you could usually get your own name registered if in fact it was your name. And so,
0: um, so I and set that's up. It's a great name. I mean, like you, you, you got to thank your parents. Like if you were called like. Georgina Thompson, like I don't think you could start a fashion brand with that name, or with my name. There's a potion. I mean, you're you're shit out of luck. Like it's not going to be. Yeah, I I think I wish I had your name.
1: Uh, You know, I think (laughs) we can trade for a day. We can trade for a day. But I, you know, I've lived in it for so long. I've I've just ingrained it in everybody's conscious for so long that uh, that um it seems to. Work and it does, and I am appreciative. Of it. I guess it could have been uh, a worse name, but a worse name. But I'm not sure I would have made a lot of choices that I made um under those circumstances. Uh, I might be orchestrating podcasts um and uh, narrating podcasts if I had your name. So, yeah. in any case, so I set up Chemical Inc. I made some business cards because I needed to. I needed some stationery. I needed to really introduce myself to people over in Italy that took about a day um and and then i found i made some cool samples there i could, i, I it went in a factory that i was able to connect to and i came back and had um sell them and um and at the time there were two choices you could take a room at the um hilton hotel because at the time that's what the shoe companies did who sold branded fashion shoes and there was about 1100 Companies and there was uh, there was thirty some odd floors, thirty some odd rooms for four and um uh and it was not a very attractive alternative, plus it was not without a cost an insignificant cost that I wasn't sure I could even afford so and the alternative was a big fancy showroom within a two block radius of the Hilton hotel, which clearly I didn't have the time or the money for that so on a whim called a friend in the trucking business said if I could figure out how to park one of your forty foot trailers on the corner of 6th Avenue and 56th Street, will you lend it to me? And he said, of course, um, jerk, but you can park a bicycle in New York for 10 minutes, let alone a truck for three days. But if you can figure out how to do it, I'll lend it to you. And, in fact, I'll even help you decorate it. So called the mayor's offices. Mayor Koch, excuse me, Mr. Mayor, how does one get permission to park a trailer on the corner of 6th Avenue and 56th Street? Answer, sorry, son, they don't. This is New York. We get permission only in the circumstances if you're a utility company servicing the streets. AT&T and Con Ed, or if you're a production company shooting a full-length motion picture, because we are going through an I Love New York campaign in the early 80s, we probably still are today. So I that afternoon I went to a stationery store, changed the name of the company from Kenneth Cole Inc, to Kenneth Cole Productions Inc, filed for a permit the next morning um, for permission to shoot a full-length motion picture called The Birth of a Shoe Company. Um, we opened for business on December 2nd. Um, I had a cameraman, sometimes there was filming his camera, sometimes there wasn't. And, um, and I had clean lights and I had stanchions and in three days, I saw every important buyer in the industry. And the more important they were, the longer I made them wait. And, um, we sold 40,000 for of shoes, uh, after two, two and a half days. Um, wow. and, uh, there was a payphone on the corner. That was my link to the uh, factories and I was every, uh, few hours. I was, I was adjusting production from the high heel to the low heel, to the red, to the blue, and, uh, and I was off and running.
0: Kenneth, I saw that you had started Kenneth Cole Productions, Inc., or Kenneth Cole, Inc., uh, with Sam Edelman, who also has an eponymous uh, you know, fashion company. How did that relationship come to be?
1: So Sam was a good friend. Sam worked with me at El Greco. And um, and then I left my father and Sam said, "Look, I'm not staying here if you're not." And, and I said, "All right, I just you, Dan, I just got to get my father okay with this." So he came with me, and we started the business together. And uh, uh, and Sam was uh, again a good friend, He's a very talented and good salesman. And uh, so uh, and he helped launch
2: um, chemical production. So after after a birth of a shoe company and you know selling all these pairs, what kind of what kind of came next? I mean, did you decide I need to open up a store like a formal kind of you know flagship storefront or or what? So
1: I so the first season in business we sold pretty much every we sold almost everybody we sold Bloomingdale's Bergdorf's that maybe so um and uh and after about two years maybe not even um, I felt that if we're going to really have a brand that's going to tell a story we needed to have to go to control um, that story. And, and you couldn't do that in a traditional department store. We needed our own physical space. So we um, signed a lease um, for a small store on Columbus Avenue, which was very popular on space. uh, where there was a few avant-garde retailers and uh, opened the first Kenneth Cole store between 70, 76 and 77th Street on Columbus Avenue um, at that about a, two years into business and three years into business I uh, we started Men's Shoes but and every year we would kind of launch something um, new, kind of push the envelope a little bit Um uh, and, uh, you know, I, I could have, I, I had to make a, a decision at those points. I, 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 I wanted, I needed to grow the business because I just felt I needed to do that. And, and I had two choices I could find, um, I could sell more shoes to more people, but I felt I stood the chance of, of, of um, diminishing the brand because the brand would likely be less cool um if i started to find audiences that were a little less cool so um i decided that i'll sell more things more products to the same customers rather than more shoes to more customers so that was a path i decided to become a lifestyle brand in effect um and starting with men's shoes and then handbags and then and then slowly
0: over time apparel So Kenneth, just taking it back a step, I know you had mentioned selling 40,000 pairs of shoes in two and a half days, which is obviously an incredible feat. Um, and this is more of a hypothetical and I don't mean to to put you on the spot, but it's just something that I thought about, you know, if you were doing that today, right. And of course, luck has a big role to play, but. How do you do that now, right? For those that are listening that either have a business or are looking to start a company in whatever space it may be, how do you reach that quickly, that many people, and not only reach them, but get them to pay for something?
1: You know, I, look, you, the times are very different, but so are the resources. I think today you can reach many more people um, w- with way less expense and effort. Um, and um you know virtually so and you can reach sig- significantly large audiences and there are um these digitally native businesses that are popping up every 15 minutes and uh if you have a compelling enough story to tell uh and you have one that people want to share you know through viral you know realities people you know you can connect with everybody everywhere um they used to say there were seven degrees of separation i believe today it's two two and a half i mean everybody knows somebody who knows everybody. So you can today, I think as, I mean, you're going to read, you have to go through the customer necessarily. I went through um, an industry through a marketplace. So it was a, di- a different process, but um, you know, I think being an entrepreneur is a very, is it, is a unique skill and it's, a uh, um, uh, and it. I don't think it's, it's for everybody, but I, and it's, I do think it's uh, uh, it's about doing what you have to do to the degree you need to do it, regardless of what it takes. So, and um, so, um, and I think that uh, um, and that initially manifests itself with with selling a specific product. We just launched something totally alien to me. Had nothing to do with anything I was even slightly familiar with a couple of years ago, called NFTs. And um, I still don't know what the hell they are. But I, we launched. I still don't them. know what they are either. We launched them um, recently, and we sold out in two hours. But um, and that was through a virtual platform um not knowing who would if anyone would show up or not and you know i had a party and uh um i sent out limited invitations would anybody show up i don't know and if they did would they you know how responsive enthusiastic and supportive would they be if and when they did so um not knowing any of that but um We sold all our NFTs that we five hundred of them in two hours. If we had five thousand, would you have sold them? I think so, Um, and maybe three hours or four. Who knows? But I think today, if you can, if you have a product that people want, you can reach more people more efficiently, more productively than you ever could before.
2: You mentioned some of the department stores that the brand was in early on. How did did they just take notice after that kind of whole kind of birth of a shoe company? Or, or did you like have to you know go out there and, and hard sell you know your product into some of these stores?
1: You know, I think that everybody's curious about something that's different. We were different, um, and we were, by the way, going through a downturn in the economy in the early '80s at the and, um, it, and I've always believed that in good times, people want to just do what they're doing and do more of it. If you have a con- if you have a product that's selling, make as much money as you can. Deliver them to the same as many of the same kinds of customers as quickly as you can, and you'll scale your business. Um, so, uh, but I, but, and if you have a store, you open more of those stores in similar malls, similar cities as quickly as you can. So, but in tough times, people want creative alternatives, and we represented ourselves to be that cr- a creative alternative. Um, and you know, nobody bought a lot, you know, everybody was curious, and um, people wanted to buy some. So especially when it, it, it was perceived to be um, uh, in, in, in demand and by other people that they perceived to respect. So, um, you know, I did, we didn't know where this road was going to take us. I didn't know this was the business I was going to be in probably a month before I was in it and uh, maybe two. And, uh, and then I wasn't sure where it was going to take me from there. But again, as an entrepreneur, you, you know, you go, you don't have necessarily long-term plans. Um, you have plans to make plans and you, um, you know, you you proceed thoughtfully, deliberately, but one step at a time. We, the business I've always believed needed to be agile, relevant, and profitable. And, um, those are the three filters that, um, that we've used and we were pivoting, you know, 40 years ago before it was a popular, um, business practice. Yeah. And, And you know, and... And every day you look in the mirror. Every day you look in the paper. You read the news. You and you, you know, and you reflect on what's happening in the world. And you and, and and there's all these forces that come into play that you can't control. And so you have to continue to factor them into the equation. And every over the years, I've continuously said to, to my associates, "Are we going to do on Monday just because it's what we did last Monday, or is this still the right thing to do?" Um, So much is changing all the time, changing in people's minds and our perceptions. The shoes, still the same shoes, they're going to fit the same way. But at the end of the day, um, you know, what is that process of connecting to people um, is changing rapidly. And you need to essentially, again, put yourself emotionally out there um, and and understand where people are. and then respond to them accordingly. Um, there's something I often talk about and think about, or I haven't. Or I don't think I've often articulated this this way. Um, is is a decision tree? So, and a process. So, if if I want to sell somebody a pair of shoes, um, I got to pass no less than four tests. And I have to. You have to know that, and you have to know what those tests are, and you have to know the order you have to pass them. And the first test is, do I look good? It, uh, is, the sh- is the product look appealing, and if it does, then I get to take the next test. For some people, it's the price; some people, it's the brand, and and then the third is the one that it isn't the other. And then the fourth test is how does it feel when you try it on. So, and I got to pass each of those tests. So, if I'm going to ultimately um,
0: consummate a transaction, and um, and you have to know that. So, um, Kenneth, how uh, do you how do you yeah. inject objectivity? into that test because a lot of those questions that you that you kind of articulated are or could be very subjective in terms of how something looks how it fits so how as a founder as a leader of a company of a brand do you infuse some level of like objectiveness into that decision making process
1: I think that's a very really good question. And I, I do it intuitively at most people. It's people struggle with it. I struggle with this sometimes too. But, you know, creating the product, you know, is very emotional, very personal. And then, but once it's done, I become very objective and I, and I have no problem. And I would over the years would sit on the subway or walk the streets and I'd see people wearing the product or on occasion mention the, or reference the product in a positive and or negative way. And, um, and I am very non emotional about it. So, um, and I don't take it personally. And, uh, um, and I think that is that's critical to be able to be successful here. And, um, and I can look at it as critical, probably more critical than most people about what we're doing wrong and, um, or better yet, what we can do better. I don't really like to talk about what we're doing wrong, but so how do we, you know, what's working and what can we do better? That's essentially the questions that I would continue to challenge. Um, our associates, to myself, associates, to ask ourselves, and um, in a non-emotional way.
0: Yeah,
2: um, you know, it's it's interesting. We've seen so many brands come and go in this fashion space, and, you know, some of them have come and sticked with kind of their initial audience as they've grown older and, and, and perhaps have not, you know, have... have have become like a not so cool brand anymore because, you know, the younger, maybe kids aren't wearing it, but I feel like your brand has been able to kind of stand the test of time and really like appeal to so many different audiences. And is it really just what you just said, like paying attention, seeing what trends there are, what people, and maybe not like following the trends, obviously, you know, you want to kind of lead those trends, but how do you, how do you kind of stay up to date with all those things?
1: you know I, I guess if you're able to um you know i was if you can if you can um again put yourself in the perfect shoes, I was making product for myself so um and what would I wear and you know it, it, as I said before, I'd look in the closet, what do I wish wishes here and then i'd and then I'd make it i'd go to work and make it and and if but it, oh, if it was only a little bit you know um softer, or if it's a little bit higher, or if it was a little bit this or that. And um and that is something pe- not everybody can do easily. And um is and I would insist on being out in the market. I traveled around the world a lot over the years, every year. And I was consistently in the stores and, and it was important to me not to see what was out there and what people were wearing. Not so I knew what to make, but often usually what not to make. And um and what, you know, what didn't exist what wasn't there. Um, so, uh, you know, today it's a, I'm probably jumping ahead of where you want to go here, but today is a very different um, story because today I don't believe anybody needs anything. Um, there isn't, isn't a person, as I said before, that needs another pair of shoes, black shoes or anything. And everybody, the most, one of the most precious and valuable commodities in almost everybody's life is closet space, and they don't have any. So I've got to earn a right in your, in your already crowded closet um, to exist, which means something else invariably is going to have to go. Um, And I have to have a more of a viable reason to exist than it does.
0: So I have a question. I know you had mentioned some of these retailers earlier and I I don't consider myself to be a fashion expert by any means um, or a fashion retailer expert either, but your brand, Kenneth Cole, was in several different retailers. Um, I think you had mentioned Bloomingdale's. I know I've seen it at Macy's. What impact, from a perception standpoint, does being in one retailer versus the other have on the brand? Because I know when you know Pat and I are thirty, so when we were growing up, you know, when we were kids up to our high school years, Macy's was definitely, in my opinion, a higher end kind of store. And now it's gone to become, from my perception again, more of like a JCPenney. And so how, and maybe I'm wrong, but how has that impacted the brand Kenneth Cole and perhaps even other brands that sell in those retailers?
1: You know, this is a process that you weigh all the time. And I was... When we first started, for years, every product that we brought to market—I had my own department at Bloomingdale's, my second year in business on the main floor, um, lady shoes—and then slowly they brought in everything that we did for, for a period of time, and then as the Nordstrom, and then um, and then as the Macy's. So, um, and then we went public about ten years into business. Um, why? I, 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 because I guess that was another mountain to. To scale that, uh, a way to access resources uh, less emotionally, um, and to grow the business in ways probably with resources that you couldn't otherwise. So, we went public, traded on the New York Stock Exchange um, for twenty years, and um, and there's inherent pressure to grow the business and to scale the business. So, you tend to make decisions you might make might not make otherwise, and um, so. We sold a lot to Macy's. We sold a lot to a lot of retailers, and the um, then at, at about twenty years into this, uh, you know, I was talking to some friends, and and, um, and and the question was, why are you public? And and I, I hadn't, de- I just because I was, but I hadn't realized that I I could change that. So I made an exerted effort um, to become to go private which was uh one of the best decisions that i've made um over the years and uh, if you don't need to be public it is, it is so debilitating um having to deal in public markets and and subject to all the oversight and compliance and and uh, protocols of being um, a public um, commodity so um uh so we went private maybe i don't know close to 10 about 10 years ago now or, or so and um which was a very wise, with the plan to ultimately change the business, and in, in fact, to your point, to get smaller, so we can get bigger. And because we were in more doors than we should be, selling products we probably shouldn't be shouldn't have. And um, but I, I I could not have made that some of those tough decisions um, if we were still public.
2: Had you had you not made that decision, do you think the brand would still be around today? That's a good question. I I like to think I, I have a lot of.
1: Um, I, I I feel we would have been around. I don't know what we would be. I think we'd probably be a different kind of company today, but I do think that I, I do think I'm realistic and I, 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 and I do look in the mirror all the time and I, I do reflect on the, the viability of what we're doing and, um, and how to, and what to do and how to position ourselves where I see the world going and, so I don't think we'd be the same company we are today if we were um if we were still public to your point.
2: Yeah. What what does your involvement look like today with the company? Um how how hands-on on are you with perhaps design or other things? Um Yeah, can you share a little bit there?
1: So I'm still very involved. I am uh, I'm st- I'm CEO of Chief Creative Officer as well. I love it. Um which is why I still do it. And um and uh I do think you have to love it today if you're gonna succeed at something. And you have to recognize that it, this is this isn't a nine to five job It never will be. And to the degree you treat it as that, you won't you're likely you will not be successful. But um you have to make life compromises to succeed at anything you set out to do. And um and I committed to do this. Um and but one of the things I also committed to do was to Somehow merge other personal needs that were important to me um, and family, community, and there was community interest um, initiatives that were important to me and still are, and I infused them into the business very early on um, and social philanthropy it was what was called it was initially philanthropy and then maybe social impact um, and I made them part of the business part of the brand, which also made it even that much more fulfilling. And, uh, and family and I, you know, my, uh, family, uh, works with me with it, um, periodically in different aspects of business. So, um,
0: Kenneth, we definitely but, want to uh, delve into those because, you know, I think that that is a huge part of who you are and your purpose. Um, and before we do that though, I think that it's important for perhaps you to share what some of those compromises that you made were to pursue entrepreneurship because, Patrick and I have been doing this now for this podcast for four and a half plus years. And we've had 200 and I don't know, 20 plus people that have been on the podcast. And when we started it, we were both, you know, 25 and very, you know, into entrepreneurship. Still are, uh, maybe a little bit more jaded now. Um, But you realize how unsexy entrepreneurship is, right? You realize how you know, brutal it can be. And you realize how much you have to give up to be an entrepreneur. What are some of those realities for you or what were some of those realities for you that you can perhaps share and could be, you know, both motivating or a complete, you know, somebody hears this and says, you know what, I don't want to be an entrepreneur anymore. You know,
1: um, you know, I, I think I alluded to before. It's, it's, the commitment, basically, to do whatever, whatever it takes, no matter what it takes, and there's no rules, and um, and you you got to give of yourself physically and emotionally, um, in ways you might not imagine. But you have to. Be so it has to. You have to really want it, and if you do, and you have to find find. Um, Reward in doing it, um, and not just financial, because it takes time sometimes to realize the financial return. And if you can get yourself there, um, it can be a very fulfilling journey. Um, and the journey hopefully becomes even more rewarding than destination. Um, and uh, you know, I, I set out down this road, not sure where it was going to take me, and, and uh, what uh, where what would become of it. Um, not not a clue. There's not a shot I would have anticipated that we'd I'd still be in this same sort of business all these years later, let alone doing what I'm doing. So um but you have to want it. If you want it in your heart and you commit to it like I'm sure you have with this podcast. I mean you've you've uh you've been uh persevering and uh and dedicated to it and you've had a lot of uh success doing it.
2: Yeah. Um so uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, <clears throat> if I'm not mistaken, when you launched the mental health coalition, um perhaps I think I think I might have read it was right before the pandemic, which is very interesting timing because I'm sure a lot of things changed and uh there's a lot lot more work to do at that point. But what prompted you to 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 decide, you know, I want to kind of pursue this mission of destigmatizing, you know, mental health and uh yeah, what what's kind of been the main focus since then?
1: So I I spent a lot of years, Patrick, working in HIV. Um, a lot of years, like thirty years. I was chairman of Amfar. I do believe we had a huge impact on, on millions of people's lives. And um, I could step back from that. My daughters, my family wasn't really interested in HIV, but they they were very. One daughter, Amanda specifically, was who, who I was working with in a lot of us CSR um social responsibility was very um um focused on mental health as as, as later became my my daughter katie so um and we were working as a company with nami to institute an initiative um a stigma free workplace this is what they they were trying to get other companies to do so we committed um on uh uh my daughter's urging um to, to go down that road and then they came um, uh, Nami came and tried to convince us that would we work on an anti-stigma campaign mental health like I had for HIV for so many years. And, um, and I believed that the change, first of all, they say it was one in 200 people who were living with HIV. One in four or apparently, according to WHO, were living with mental health issues, related issues. And I came to believe very quickly it was it was four and four. If it was because if it wasn't you, it's was somebody you love, somebody in the family, in the community, in the workplace. But we were all living with it. And when we you sit back and you reflect, and and two thirds of those were doing so in the proverbial shadows because there wasn't the tools to to, to confront it and to, to talk about it, and there was nothing society there was nothing societal that nobody accepted one's one's vulnerability and um we didn't teach you how to be empathetic. People didn't understand the tools of dealing with other individuals' struggles, let alone their own. So um so I my thinking to change this is gonna require changing culture. It's such a massive overhaul because none of the tools that exist were usable. Um the existing vocabulary um, was, was all um, stigmatized. Uh, I asked five psychiatrists for a definition of depression. I got five different answers. None of them were empowering. None of them could you use and feel good about using. So we set out to say, okay, well, if we are going to try to do this, it's a massive undertaking, changing culture, new narrative, new vocabulary, rebranding mental health. And what are my qualifications? I'm in the, I'm in the uh, perception business. Okay, I'm not a a public health person. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a, you know, all that. So, um, and I just, and NAMI said, we're all in. And then we said, okay, well, let's see if we can make this a bigger initiative. And we systematically reached out to every, um, all the largest mental health service providers in the country, all the important ones, that that were serving different disparate and at-need, at-risk communities. And every one of them said, we're in. So now we've got this very impressive, Community of, of of organizations who, in fact, were qualified, you know, um, and who and who all agreed to work together, um, and collaborate and cooperate, communicate um, on a path to destigmatize mental health, understanding that that was the biggest single and most important obstacle everybody had to confront, as it was with HIV. So um, we uh, and then we started bringing then. We bring in some great creative companies. Um, Pentagram said it helps us will help you with all your all the graphics pro bono, every and then um, iHeart and then we started Facebook came on board and said, This is great, we love this. Our um, aggregated list of resources from all of our partners became probably the most comprehensive list that existed in the universe. If you wanted to get access to mental health services, you have to go to seventy five websites. There wasn't a place you could go. Um, where it all so we had this aggregated list now, um, and it became the um, the uh, well being um, default for Instagram and other Facebook platforms, and uh, and now we're starting to work with uh, with Google as well. So the goal now is that we could bring. So now we have a, an initiative to rebrand mental health, um, making very significant progress. Ultimately, now. Building communities, um, which is become we're realizing is part of, of needs to happen, and then ultimately, to marry needs the resources. Um, take all these, uh, we have the communities, and now you have the resources. How do you connect the dots? Then this I always thought it would take decades. This was going to be generational, but in fact, it isn't that because there is this these industries. Big tech today does this for a living, and they connect everything, everywhere, everything to everybody. In the ordinary course and um and we're uh making very impressive we just ha- we're just getting um we've done some great stuff that's being highly um uh regarded and supported and and uh um connecting with millions of people in positive ways and positively helping people we launched an initiative that actually my daughter katie um spearheaded um a couple of years ago, at the very beginning of COVID, which asked um, the most asked question everywhere in the world, every day of the week, in every language, and the one most rarely ever answered, which is "How are you really?" And we challenge people to answer the question, and and then we encourage others to engage with it, with that, and to also do the same, and to build a database of uh, of people's individual reflections. Um, and we had over two hundred thousand engagements the first weekend when we launched this and uh i I went on the air with kendall jenner and then it was a challenge um and kim kardashian retweeted and justin Bieber retweeted so and then all of a sudden 200 million people as i just said the first weekend um uh and and then we launched another initiative last year with instagram on uh mental health awareness month every day in may we had a different conversation with somebody with a very large audience of followers. And, um, and they vulnerably discussed their struggles with somebody they're inclined to speak to, both of whom usually had large audiences. And we had a wonderful engagement, very impressive engagement from various uh, minority and at-risk communities. And we connected with over 700 million um, people um, had access to, to, to the content that we put out um, during the, that last month of May. So today, you can reach people like you never could before, as we were talking about a little while ago with uh, with fashion. Um, and uh, you can do it effortlessly. You can do it almost virtually um, simultaneously. And uh, the opportunities are are really endless, what you can get done today.
0: Kenneth, do you think that entrepreneurs and founders of companies are in a better position today to influence and create policy that impacts this country and even beyond in a positive manner versus the politicians and elected leaders?
1: Well, you know, I don't. Uh, it's hard for me to say that i you know i i've been doing this all my life and uh, you know, all my certainly on my my business life my professional life and then very early on when we went public which was about 30 years ago people would say well is it's really your place as a public company to be using resources to talk about um uh political issues and my answer was a first of all i was doing this before i went public so nobody who signed on knew, everybody knew what they were signing on to so and Independent of that, they're not political issues. These are human issues or social issues. They're not, not and they've been politicized, I'll give you that, but that's not the road I'm on. And I and to the degree you can avoid that narrative, um, you can reach people in very meaningful ways. And I have said from the very beginning that it's so much more powerful to talk to people about not just what they stand in, but what they stand for, and not just what they look like on the outside but who they are on the inside. And it's so much more sustainable um, and over time, and uh, uh, much more so than a heel height or a hem length, um, and or any other silhouette that we could um, bring to market. So I'm, And I, I've done that, and I, it makes what I do more fulfilling for me. And I do, to the degree you can impact people in meaningful ways, Then it, uh, I do think it elevates our relationship. In ways that the product alone can't do.
0: Mm -hmm. If you could go back, you know, pivoting a little to the business side, if you could go back in time and, you know, change something or any part of the business that you created, what would it be? Well, I mean, you
1: know, one thing is,
0: if you ask me if I have any regrets, and I
1: always, I always say no. I don't, I don't have any regrets. Everything I've ever done, whether it's worked out or hasn't, has informed decisions I've made afterwards, and um, it's enabled me to be the person I am today and to do what I've been able to do today. So I have no regrets. When I've done things differently in retrospect, looking back, I used to think that my job was to sell shoes. I think I referred to this earlier. I, I've come to realize that I can't. You can't build a business selling people choose one. And so and I needed to focus. I focus I was obsessed with how it looked and I spent five minutes on how it felt. Um and today I focus much more on how it feels and less on how it looks. Um and today uh um I, I you need to come back. I need to have an ongoing relationship with our customers. There's only so many of them out there at the end of the day. And um the cost of the the customers um, becomes much more viable to the degree you can keep them. So, um, that, you know, that wasn't the case earlier on in my, uh, uh, in my journey.
2: As someone who, you know, as a designer and perhaps sees the, the world a little maybe differently as, you know, than others, maybe, you know, in a more creative way, perhaps. And, and, and obviously now we hear and see a lot of just negativity in the world, right? A lot a lot going on. I'm curious, in your perspective, what's something that you're very excited or optimistic about, whether it's in fashion or in general?
1: Um,
2: what am I excited about?
1: Is that, that, is that the question uh, um, Patrick? What, what am I excited about? Yeah. I, I do think we can... You know, we're, we just last weekend watched these kids from um from florida who had set up this march for our lives movement who last year and then during the elections probably did more in a few months to positively impact the gun movement than my generation has done in 40 years so i think today you can you can connect with people meaningful ways and i think and you can make a meaningful impact and i think you, you, you have to be genuine. You have to be um, authentic, as they say. And um, uh, and I do think that it bodes well um, for the business. And, you know, in the past, I started to say before, when people would challenge what we did before, they'd say, is it right for public companies spending consumers' resources on issues like this? Um, and, 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 in fact, are they, is, is it related? And uh, my answer is not only... Is is it is it not unrelated? It's interrelated, and 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 not only are they not connected, um, but they're interconnected. And I do believe that community outreach and engagement is the proverbial hand that connects that uh, um, that uh, that feeds you as the business person. And you need to serve that person in more ways, in more meaningful ways, not just superficial ways. So, and those relationships are very sustainable. Um, if
0: you can do that. Kenneth, you're obviously a very busy individual and, you know, between the businesses, between the social impact work that you're doing, what do you spend your free time on? Whatever the definition of free time means to you.
1: Um, and I, don't, I
0: don't
1: have a lot of free time, but, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I, um, I, I guess pre-COVID, I traveled a lot more than I do now. But um, uh, I, but I love what I do, and, and I, and I love the ability to, you know, to 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 connect with people, to positively impact people and people's lives um, when I can, and uh, when the opportunity um, presents itself, I have a hard time walking away from it. Um, and uh, I love to fish. I love to play golf. I love to be out in the world. I have a home in Mothers Vineyard. Um and uh and I like to merge that also with what I do to the degree that you can and uh so um people ask me if I grew up in New York and I tell them um no but I intend
0: to. Where do you see yourself in five years? Um,
1: I was asked that question, a similar question to that not that many years ago um and my answer was that i don't think today i think today that's almost with all due respect an irrelevant question because the world is changing today so fast and you need to resist thinking that far out because you don't we don't have the ability to anticipate where the world is going to be in five years and people are talking about self-driving cars they're going to be flying cars probably faster than self-driving cars and everything we know and understand is, is going to be, it, it just is it, you know, a few years ago I was, uh, talking to women's where they, when they asked me some questions and I said, you know, the, the, um, the largest taxi company in the world that didn't exist five years ago. Um, and they don't even own any of their own cars. Uber, And the largest accommodations provider doesn't own any real estate and it's Airbnb and the largest, um, uh, um media company or doesn't even create its own content it's facebook and this was uh and they hardly existed or certainly not in that format five years ago so i just think you can't you've got i think what i've done with my business here we've been we're just just about to celebrate 40 years we built a platform that is agile and has and pivots in response to things in an ordinary course and, um, you need to prepare for what, what you can anticipate. And you need to focus on what you can and execute in, in um, efficiently to the degree you're able. And, um, I don't know what, uh, um, I don't know what the metaverse has in store for us. I don't know where, how I'm going to exist there. It doesn't feel I, it, who I'm going to know there. Um and how i'm gonna get go about my days there, but I am fascinated by it so and there's the, there are those individuals I do believe who are who are frustrated and um, uh, and uh, and resistant to change and there's those that embrace it um, and thrive from it and I try desperately to be the latter and I, I don't always get there easily but um because i do believe that former group won't be in business um Mm -hmm. i mean it's just a matter of time and you've got to anticipate change you got to um embrace it and you've got to um, be inspired by it because at the end of the day um it's, it's basically um what we're all watching happen i mean it's uh I don't know. I mean, I'm staggered every day by all these massive changes in the way people come into the world and how they exist once they're in it the physical world, let alone the virtual world. So, um, and, uh, so you get between web three now and the NFTs and, um, oh, yeah. and how you transact and where everything exists and, and how we consume it, um, and engage with it. Um, is changing at such at astoundingly fast paces. I don't think, I don't know, maybe you guys have a sense of where it's going to be in five years. I don't have a clue.
0: And by the way, I hate that question too, which is why I asked it and you gave the perfect <laughs> response. I mean, you know, and a lot of times it's funny because employers will just ask you, like, where do you see yourself in five years? It's like, well, I see myself making a lot more money than you're offering me right now, right? Like that's, that's <laughs> the first. Um, but I think that the response that you gave and the fact that you have built a company that, is agile is really the right response. I think that companies that are either in existence now or starting out need to be flexible, right? I know that like, you know, a few months ago, there was this huge movement of everything has to go into web three and that's kind of taken a step back obviously. And I think, you know, we're going to go through this recessionary period and things will change and slow down a bit, but it's inevitable that there will be a component of that virtual augmented reality that will play a role in our personal lives, in our business lives, in the way that we make money, spend money, recruit people. Um, And I do think that, you know, you know, as a leader, you have to be open to those ideas, even if those are not the ideas that, you know, you started your movements, your businesses with. So, you know, thank you for your insight, your knowledge and sharing your story. I think that, it's a it's a huge inspiration for all those that are listening that want to become entrepreneurs, whether in fashion or not, um, and that you know social impact and the work that you're doing can be tied into business. I think they call it social entrepreneurship, and I think we're seeing a lot more of it. And hopefully, um, hopefully, we will see that trend continue. You know, when I it used to be called philanthropy and then it became social impact
1: and maybe social entrepreneurship is the way certain people use now i don't know but um in the past it you know it was those who said didn't do those who did didn't say and um but you couldn't make money doing it it was uh it was uh it was something you did for the greater good today it's you know you can and today you can you know if you can make you can serve certain people's needs and needs of certain communities it's okay to to, to realize um, and prosper from from it, in, in you know, in, in socially and culturally and, and financially. So, um, and it's, I think it's a big, and it's something I encourage students to consider. Seriously. And I, um, as they're coming out of schools and, and they're planning their path forward. And I do believe to the degree um, you become a change agent, an agent change, um, you're, journey will be so much more rewarding um than you could possibly imagine otherwise and um and it's not all it's not about the destination it's very much about the journey and it's about you know your steps and your paths forward
2: um from this day forward
0: yeah couldn't agree more well thank you
2: so much ken and congrats on 40 years it's that's amazing and incredible and and you, we can't wait to see you know where things go from here and appreciate your time um, thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Posh. And uh this is uh, a for enjoyable for being in touch.